All right, this is our final conversation in a series of messages we've called Stubborn Joy. We've worked our way through Paul's letter to the Christians in Philippi, and this letter, by the way, has appropriately been called an ode to joy. So he hits the joy theme over and over again, and yet again in our final lesson, he does so. It should be obvious to all of us by now that this letter literally oozes joy. It's like eating a hamburger with way too much ketchup and mustard on it. So when you pick it up and bite into it, the sauce just oozes out of every edge. Joy oozes out of every paragraph in this letter. And you know, we really don't know why. Perhaps Paul has heard that the Philippians are in dire need of encouragement. They were themselves at the edge of being mistreated because of their faith. They knew that Paul was suffering even worse. Maybe their faith was being swamped with fear and worry instead of producing its natural byproducts of joy and peace. And maybe Paul knows they need to be bolstered. Or maybe Paul has heard that their faith has been ground down to a dull monotony. One relatively joyous day after another with very little spiritual life. He knows that there is some infighting among them. Perhaps it's worse than this letter even indicates. Perhaps Paul knows that he needs to inject some joy into this fellowship. Or perhaps these Philippians were such a source of joy for Paul that he can't help himself. They had contributed to Paul's life and ministry more faithfully over the years than any of his other church plans. And again, they have sent a gift to him while he's in prison in writing this letter. We find out in this very last section of the letter that part of the reason for writing it is to thank them for this and to encourage their continued generosity. Perhaps the joy is purely spontaneous because of these Philippians, that they bring him so much joy. We don't know. Similarly, I don't know why the Holy Spirit has been working this into your life right now. Right? Don't snooze on that fact. We don't believe you're listening to this by accident. God's Spirit has had need for you and for me to hear about joy. So with that in mind, let's leap into our final lesson. And it's a great one. For those of you who like titles, let's call this one Final Encouragements and the Great Aha. All right, as with some of his other letters, at the end, Paul piles up his closing comments in the form of encouragements, commands really, that hit on some of the themes and ideas that are most pressing on his mind and that have been recurring throughout the letter. In effect, he's saying, in conclusion, remember this and this and this. So the bulk of the fourth chapter of this letter breaks into four thought bombs. The first two are related to one another because they connect over the idea of God's peace. The third one has the great aha, and the final one has some tidying up thoughts and one final encouragement. So let's begin with the first thought bomb in verses four through seven. As we read it, you'll hear three encouragements aimed at times in our lives when peace is lacking. Let's read verses 4 through 7 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Did you hear the three encouragements aimed at times in our lives when peace is lacking? Encouragement number one, choose to rejoice. And then he doubles down. I will say it again, rejoice. We said it last week. 
but it bears repeating because Paul keeps repeating it. The life in which joy becomes more typical is a life in which gratitude is intentionally thought about and expressed. The person in whom joy becomes more typical is the kind of person who looks for opportunities to practice joy and to express it. One of my sons has a significant friend who gave me a book of dad jokes for Father's Day. Major mistake. I have bombarded my children with dad jokes by text over the last two weeks. For instance, this one. I'm sorry, man. I feel like your mom and I didn't teach you enough geography when you were young. For instance, what is the greatest pan in the world? Pause and then next text. Well, it's Japan, of course. Now, I know that's not funny. They know that's not funny. They know that I know that's not funny. And somehow that makes it funnier. And I know you practice that same kind of ridiculous micro habit as well. And oftentimes your practices, your micro habits are more substantial than stupid dad jokes. For instance, there are the I'm so proud of you moments or the what an awesome day this is moments or best of all, stop. How good is God moments? And these practices are very, very good, according to Paul. In fact, we should hunt them down and suck all of the joy out of them. We should choose to rejoice anytime we can. Let's say it again. Rejoice. Second, encouragement for times when peace is lacking. Choose gentleness. Let your gentleness be evident to all, Paul encourages. Now, the Greek word used behind our translation is epiakis. Scholars will tell us it's a bit hard to translate exactly. The NIV, which we read, gives gentleness. Some others offer reasonableness or good sense or courtesy. Commentators consistently insist that this word contains an element of selflessness. The gentle person does not insist on her own rights. Let me quote one of those commentaries. It is that considerate courtesy and respect for the integrity of others which prompts a person not to be forever standing on their own rights, end quote. Gentleness, courtesy. We must choose it to foster peace in our lives. Think how important this quality would be when peace is lacking in a home or in a church. Think of our current political environment. Choose gentleness. Now, let me say a word about peace in general here. You know, peace and joy are not the same, but, but they are first cousins, I think. In fact, it would be safe to think of peace as resting joy. And if you don't have peace, joy is going to be diminished for sure. So what do we do when peace is lacking? We choose to rejoice. We choose to be gentle, to be considerate, to be reasonable. And a third encouragement, we choose to pray. Look at verse 6. Prayer runs directly counter to worry, according to Paul. In fact, it's the antidote to worry. I'm reminded of that old adage that you can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. Well, sometimes worry is inevitable, even appropriate, but it doesn't have to become our address. Instead, we should choose to pray. He means this quite literally. Choose to take your concerns to God. Instead with thanksgiving, by the way, instead of worry. What do we do when peace is lacking in our lives? We choose to rejoice, we choose to be gentle, and we choose to pray. And when we make these choices, then God's incomprehensible peace 
will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. This brings us to thought bomb number two. In this thought bomb, Paul lays out two practices aimed at building more peace into our lives. I'm going to read verses 8 and 9 of Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. All right, the first practice aimed at building more peace into our lives is to choose to think right thoughts. Let's acknowledge that we have minimal direct control over our emotions. By and large, they happen to us. We don't see a large snake crawling out of our toilet and think, I should be afraid now. Perhaps my heart should beat faster and I should yell. No, those things pretty much just happen. But we can make choices that build an internal environment where positive emotions are encouraged. We can make choices that build an internal environment where positive emotions are encouraged seemingly naturally and negative emotions are discouraged. That's what Paul's encouragements here are all about. So while we have minimal control over our emotions, we have a great deal of control over our thoughts. So let's think things that are true, right, noble, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. And by the way, if you've never memorized this list, I encourage you to do so. Keep it as a kind of mental checklist for yourself. Choosing to think such thoughts over the long run builds an internal environment of resting joy. Second practice that builds an environment of peace is to choose to follow Christian practices. Choose to follow Christian practices. That's what Paul is getting at when he says, what you've seen from me, put it into practice. You see, Jesus had a way of living. And I don't just mean being nice and being religious in some vague sense. He had a way. He prayed intently. He asked penetrating questions and he listened. He spoke the truth. He gathered friends. He talked about God. He was gentle but resolute. He was kind but fierce. Jesus had habits. He had a way. We should practice his way. His followers over the century have had a way of living. They've prayed. They've fasted. They've studied the Bible. They've loved earnestly. They have been generous. They they have observed times of solitude. They have engaged with others in community. They've been honest. They've been self-sacrificing. Jesus' people have over the centuries had a way of living, and we should practice that way. Why? Let me illustrate if I can. I'm not an avid baseball fan, but this past year I became a convert to the Washington Nationals. Not only a great team, but they were fun to watch. And I especially became a fan of Juan Soto, the left fielder, and especially late in the year, and why not? I mean, his performance late in the season and through the playoffs was amazing. How did he do it? So many clutch hits in clutch times, and he's so young. How? Well, he's an awesome athlete for sure. But more than that, Soto has hit hundreds of thousands of pitches over his short life. 
He's hit curveballs over and over and over again from many different pitchers of different heights, throwing from different angles. He's hit fastballs, change-ups, sliders by the tens of thousands. He's hit in good lighting and bad lighting, good weather and bad. He's practiced and over and over and over again. So when the clutch pitch came in the clutch situation, Soda could rely on his practice. It was a rhythm. It was a routine. He could perform. If Juan Soto had quit playing baseball at 11 years old, he could not, absolutely not, under any circumstances now, step onto a baseball field and hit a major league curveball. No way. If we want to build a life in which resting joy becomes typical, in good times and bad times, we will choose to think right thoughts and we will choose to follow Christian practices. Then in crunch time, we can perform. We can continue to express our faith, continue to represent Christ, continue to experience joy. And now we come to the great aha in the third thought bomb. We referenced Paul's great aha in one of our first weeks together. I don't know if I called it that, but it's arguably the high point in Paul's whole train of thought in this letter. So let's hear it now, verses 10 through 13. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, if you've been around the church very much, you may have heard Philippians 4.13 quoted by someone. And there's a better than even chance that it may have been misused or at least overdone. Here's what I mean. Paul says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And this is often cited as a kind of empowering victory mantra for Christians. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can make a million dollars. I can win this beauty pageant. I can get the job I want and have perfect children through him who gives me strength. Of course, there is great strength and great victory through Christ who gives us strength. We can literally do everything that he purposes for our good and for our holiness and for his glory through him who gives us strength. But the emotional tenor of this verse, based on the context of this paragraph, is slightly different from the way it's often used and sometimes nearly the opposite. What Paul is saying here is that no matter how great the suffering, he can do it through Christ who gives him strength. No matter how deep the difficulty, he can maintain his calling. He can maintain his faith with joy and peace because of the strength that courses through him as a gift from God because of what Jesus Christ has done. But this confidence and this equilibrium, this steady hand and heart, didn't come easily or overnight. Paul learned it. He learned it. He learned to be a flower that can bloom even under the most desperate conditions. He learned to be content, whether living in plenty or in want. Look, the idea that we can certainly be happier and have better lives if we could just get that promotion or if we could just remodel the kitchen or if we could just take that Disney vacation, that idea wasn't invented by the American suburbs. Now, we may have perfected it, but we didn't invent it. That delusion has been around since humans could be deluded. We believe that we could have more joy in our lives if, if we just find 
romance or fill in the blank. We have to learn that joy is built slowly over time by consistently making the right choices. We believe that we would have more joy in our lives if we were just better looking. But we have to learn that joy is built by consistently practicing a Christian walk. I like the way Pastor Tim Keller explains it. He offers this illustration. Do you remember when your mother used to say, don't eat candy before meals? Why did she say that? Because she knew it would ruin your next meal. The trouble with eating candy is that it gives you a sugar buzz and then you don't feel hungry. Candy masks the fact that your body needs proteins and vitamins. The sugar buzz from candy masks your hunger for the real nutrients that you don't have and really need. Things like sex, power, money, and success, as well as favorable circumstances, act like spiritual sugar. Christians who have these spiritual candies may say, sure, I believe in God and know I'm going to heaven, but they're actually basing their day-to-day joy on favorable circumstances. When circumstances change, it hopefully drives us to God because when the sugar disappears, we're forced to pursue the feast that our souls really crave. We'll hunger for the spiritual nutrients we really need. I have learned, Paul said, to be content in any and every situation. I can go through anything through Christ who gives me strength. Aha! And now we come to the end of Paul's Ode to Joy. We won't read it all, the final paragraph, but in the final paragraph, the final thought bomb appears. He he wraps up by thanking the Philippians for their gift that they have sent through one of their members, a man named Epaphroditus. And through this gift, Paul says he has been amply supplied, to use his words. It is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, he adds. And in the middle of this tidying up, thanking the Philippians, he offers this word, which is essentially a final encouragement to them. And listen to verse 17 of Philippians 4. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. And he ends by saying this, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Can you hear the encouragement in that? In other words, choose to be generous. God will supply. Choose to be generous. It will benefit you. It will be credited to you. Choose to be generous. It is pleasing to God. What if now doesn't seem to be the right time? Choose to be generous anyway. What if we're feeling a little uncertain? Choose to be generous. Your generosity is a fragrant offering. Your sacrifice will be acceptable to God. Choose to be generous. And all God's people said, Amen. Okay, this is not a recipe. There are no seven steps to anything in the Bible. Life is not that easy. But if it were a recipe, it's a pretty good one. When peace is lacking, choose to rejoice, choose to be gentle, choose to pray. In order to build more peace in your life, choose to think right thoughts, choose to follow Christian practices, and in all circumstances, choose to be generous. And allow God to strengthen you in everything as you learn to navigate every kind of circumstance with joy. Now, if we were all together, we would do something now to commemorate these last nine weeks and to put a joy stamp on our hearts. So I encourage you to find the time this week to walk back through Paul's letter so that you might more effectively live up to what you've already attained, as Paul put it. But now, let's end our time with one more observation. And why don't we borrow from Dallas Willard? 
He was an author and a Christian philosophy professor at the University of Southern California. In a book called The Divine Conspiracy, Dr. Willard wrote that, listen to this, God is the most joyous being in the universe. And then he illustrated with this story. While I was teaching in South America some time ago, a young man took me out to see the beaches near his home in Port Elizabeth. I was totally unprepared for the experience. I had seen beaches, or so I thought, but when we came over the rise where the sea and the land opened up to us, I stood in stunned silence and then slowly walked toward the waves. Words cannot capture the view that confronted me. I realized that God sees this all the time. He sees it, experiences it, knows it from every possible point of view. This and billions of other scenes like and unlike it in this and billions of other worlds. Great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash over his being. We pay a lot of money to get a tank with a few tropical fish in it, and we never tire of looking at their beauty and marvelous forms and their movements. But God has seas full of them, which he constantly enjoys. We are enraptured by a well-done movie sequence or by a few bars from an opera or lines from a poem. We treasure our great experiences for a lifetime, and we may have very few of them, but he is simply one great and exhaustible and eternal experience of all that is good and true and beautiful and right. And then Dr. Hiller concludes, all of the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, God continuously experiences in all their breadth and depth and richness. God is the most joyous being in the universe. You know what our souls really need? They need God. They need to be around that kind of joy. They need to drink from that well. They need to be immersed in that river in order to experience deeper and richer and stubborn joy. Our souls need God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for lessons in joy. Apply them to our hearts and our minds. We're so thankful for the privilege of having been rescued by you and being enabled to partake, to participate in the richness of your joy. We want to drink more deeply. So help us to learn. Help us to practice. Inspire us right now. Lord, as we sit in our den or as we sit on our deck or as we sit in our bedroom, inspire us, fill us, move us, and empower us, strengthen the arms that have grown weak so that we can lean in, Lord, so that we can make right choices. I hear the groanings of our heart. You are the satisfaction of those groanings. And this morning, we look solely to you. We look to you, our Lord, our Creator, our God. Jesus, we bless you for the track that you have laid down, enabling relationship with one another and with the Father. This morning, we welcome all of that into our lives, and we welcome your inexhaustible joy. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for being part of this journey toward joy. Blessings.